a little late, but such is life. We begin today our annual series, Summer in the Psalms, and we'll go probably until October. So as is our custom, we take 10 psalms every summer, and our 10th summer now, we take Psalms 91 through 100, and we begin uh, with Psalm 91. I love the psalms, and you ought to as well, because they are the divinely written songbook uh, that God has given his people. Psalm 91. This is God's holy and inspired word. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon our time in his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a marvelous word you have given to us. And we pray and we ask, Father in heaven, that you would now illumine our minds and our hearts and kindle in us such a love for you as we have seen and heard here in your word, that we would make you our refuge, that we would call you my God, my refuge, my fortress, that, Father, we would set our love upon you, O God, and you alone that we would see in our lifetime your wondrous works, Father, for us and for your people, not only here, but around the world, around this country, as you deliver us time and again from all of our foes. We pray, Father, hear us and help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the way to start this summer series in the Psalms. The Psalms give us this 30,000 foot high picture of the Christian life. So often the Psalms do get down and dirty in the nitty gritty of our lives. And they speak to us in our times of suffering. They speak to us in our times of trials 
and, and, and persecution. And it seems dark. There, there oftentimes seem in the Psalms, especially the Davidic Psalms, that there's no hope. That, that we're being asphyxiated. Life is being pressed out of us bit by bit. But we need Psalms like this, like Psalm 91, where we, we're taken upon eagle's wings, as it were. We're taken by the Lord himself. And we're told by the Lord, see, look, don't, don't ever forget in the midst of your suffering, don't ever forget who God is. What God does for his people. This is the big picture of the Christian life that you have to gain and that you have to maintain. Otherwise, you will live a hopeless Christian life. This is God, beloved. This is your God if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God whom you serve. The God who works all things, all things. Your trials, your sufferings. The hostility of our enemies in this world. God envelops all of that. And, and like the divine jujitsu master, he, he takes all of that which is meant for our hurt and meant for our destruction, meant to pummel the life out of us, and he turns it to our good. This is our God who leads us in triumph to love him, to serve him, and to trust him always. I want you to see as we work through this text three times the declaration that we are to have for our God. And those are really our three points. The three declarations we are to have for God. The declaration of our love. In verses 1 and 2, we find the first declaration. In verse 9, we find the second. And then once more in verse 14 and 15. So the first declaration of our love for God, verse 1 and 2 are almost a truism, are they not? They ring, they sound like one, right? When it says uh, in verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. As it were, the psalmist is saying here, when you make God your refuge, God will be your refuge. You will dwell with God, but you see what is being said to us here by the psalmist, by God Himself. It's a command in the form of an invitation. Make God your dwelling place. Make God your shelter. And immediately we're told in verse 2 I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, you are. My refuge, oh God, you are my one trust, my one refuge and fortress. Beloved, when danger arrives, when trials arrive in your life, you need to know what the perennial temptation is to turn somewhere else, to find your shelter somewhere else. When troubles rage like a storm, where will you find safe? Port. There are many places you can turn. The world preaches so many idols, so many gods that you can trust. But none will protect you. None will repay your trust. None, no Savior can deliver you from trouble except Jesus Christ. And this is the picture you see here in verse 2. The psalmist saying, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is the picture of the, of the Christian man, the Christian woman, the Christian child, the Christian teenager who has completely and totally entrusted their life and their destiny to God. 
Here we find the Christian approaching God as his God. Notice the personal pronouns. My refuge. My fortress. My God. Here is the Christian as we saw in last few weeks from 1 Peter chapter 5 as we ended that sermon series a few weeks ago. The Christian casting all his worries, all his anxieties, all the things that you're tempted to, to be consumed about, that you lose sleep over, the things that your mind pivots to when you're daydreaming that worry you. Here is the picture of a Christian casting all his worries, all his cares and anxieties upon God. Because God cares for him. And notice that as we trust God, as we make God our refuge, what does God do? So many things in our text. So many wondrous works are seen from God. Notice in verse 3 and 4 that God delivers us and protects us. He preserves us and protects us. Verse 3, he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, the trap that the bird catcher lays for you. He will rescue you from that from the deadly pestilence from the plague he will cover you with his feathers his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler he delivers you from all threats he covers you with his power with his mercy with his goodness here tenderly depicted as wings And we're reminded of what God reveals to Israel in Exodus 19. He tells Israel, I bore you on myself as as if on eagle's wings. God's mercy tenderly depicted. God's faithfulness powerfully depicted as a shield. Right? Nothing gets past God. He has comprehensive coverage of your life. Nothing will ultimately touch you nor destroy you. What does God do for those who trust him? Protects and preserves them. But notice verse 5 and 6, it continues. What else does God do? God makes you fearless. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. You will not fear the plague, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the dust, destruction that wastes at noonday. You will not fear. You will not dread at so many threats. It's interesting here that all of these threats, all of these enemies are personified, right? Um, in some older translations, uh, they translate verse 6b, the destruction that wastes at noonday. The noonday devil. Here, The terror of night is personified. The arrow, the pestilence that stalks, right? The enemies of God, the enemies of God's people are walking around, prowling around, stalking, looking, seeing, waiting to pounce. And there are dangers here at all hours of the day. There's dangers at night, dangers in the day, dangers in darkness, dangers in the middle of the day. And there are comprehensive dangers, dangers of your body, for your soul, mind, and spiritual dangers. And yet, what does God say? All enemies, all threats are laid aside. All of the enemies of God and of God's people are rendered impotent and powerless, such that you ought not fear them. They are brought to nothing. 
And then what else does God do for his people who trust him? Verse 7 and 8, God makes you witness his works. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense, the repayment of God upon the wicked. God, you see, invites his people to a front row seat to see, to behold, to consider, to observe carefully how he will deal with the wicked. The the wicked in our day, the evil in our day that stalks in the noonday sun, right out in the open, seems so powerful, so indestructible. And God says, They'll fall by your wayside, by your right hand and your left hand. But what is it that you think is more powerful than God Almighty? God will repay evil. God will destroy evil. What, in other words, can befall God's people that will ultimately destroy them? Nothing. Nothing. And here we need to take note of what God says. The enemies of God are many. And we can oftentimes read the book of Psalms merely as a book of personal devotion, personal writings, um, describing merely personal struggles with merely personal enemies. But there is societal evil in our day on a collective scale. Scripture says a thousand, ten thousand. The enemies of God and God's people number many, many thousands. And they are poised against the church. And we see them in our day, as we have since Genesis 3. They reject God. They seek to destroy and cheapen life. They seek to erode the foundations of truth and of society. In our day, we have seen the self exalted as a God. We see lies promoted. We see partiality and favoritism in our legal systems. We see the wholesale pursuit of pleasure, sexual and otherwise, as God, as a God, as an idol. And we can name the other strong gods of our day. There are many enemies of God and God's people. Calvin in his commentary makes an interesting point worth noting here. And he says... The the psalmist does this. He lists out, he enumerates all of God's enemies. Why? To encourage us. To encourage us to be on the lookout for all the manifold ways that God will deliver his people. There's so many foes we've considered thus far. Verse 3, the snare of the fowler, the deadly pestilence, the terror of night, arrow that flies by day, pestilence that stalks in darkness, destruction that wastes at noonday. Thousand here, 10,000 over there. In verse 10, no evil shall befall you, no plague come near you. Verse 12, there is a threat of stone, stones striking our feet. The dangers that face the church are many. For all the dangers, for all the attacks we can face as God's people, God will prove to be more powerful. God will prove to be more wise. God will prove to be more protective than our enemies. As it were, what the psalmist is doing here, what he's saying is that all of hell's fury has been uncapped against the church. But what does God do? 
See, all of hell's fury might be poised against the church, but all of heaven's power has been poured out upon the church in Jesus Christ to protect her, to counteract, and to prevail over hell at every moment, at every turn. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then we get to verse 9, which is the second, second declaration of the psalmist's love, of our love for God. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. What will happen? What's a consequence of this? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tents. Death might surround you, but it won't ever be near you. Death is all around you, but death cannot touch you. Beloved, our world, and and, and so often we can take this for granted because we we have kind of the fishbowl syndrome. We're in the church, right? We've been born and raised in the church. We're, We're covenant children. We were raised in the covenant, raised in the church. We don't realize the world out there. We don't realize what the world has and doesn't have. Our world today is characterized by spiritual confusion, by spiritual decay, misery, darkness, spiritual homelessness, alienation from God, alienation from their fellow man. But what does God say? This is not to be the case in the people of God. Death might surround us, but death cannot come near us. People today, apart from Christ, live under the curse of sin everywhere. But none of God's curses are upon you, can touch you. Throughout all of our trials, God's people remain untouched and invincible. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. The the Bible tells us and gives us these picturesque stories and episodes that happened in Israel's life to tell us to to further sink our trust in Christ. In the book of Genesis, as in the time of Joseph, famine and rages in Canaan, Joseph and his family thrive and are protected. In the book of Exodus, as the plagues fall on the rest of Egypt, as the curses of God destroy and erode the Egyptian nation and the Egyptian economy, Israel lives in the land of Goshen, protected, spared by God's power. In 2 Kings, we see and we hear the story of the Assyrian general Sennacherib who has come to defy the Lord of hosts. And he surrounds Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And he issues threats to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And it all seems dark. It all seems lost. Death surrounds the people of God. And what happens? The Lord sends his angel to slaughter all of Sennacherib's armies such that Nehemiah and Judah dwell in safety. In the book of Acts, we see the same, right? Herod, who has threatened to destroy the early church, the the embryonic church, right? He's thrown James in prison and he's executed James. And now he's thrown Peter in prison and he threatens to execute Peter. And what happens? 
the angel of the Lord rescues Peter in the middle of the night. And we're told later on in that chapter that as Herod exalts himself like every human ruler in human history, this is endemic to the human heart, Herod exalts himself and believes he is a god. We're told in the book of Acts that he is put to death by the angel of the Lord such that worms eat his innards. We can look at history, church history. We can see how the Roman Empire at different times, especially in the Diocletian persecution in 290, beginning in 290 AD, for 30 years hounded the church persecuted the church, put to death the church, and it seemed lost. It seemed like the church was not going to make it or survive. They were going to be easily extinguished. God's name was going to be extinguished from this earth. And what does God do? He destroys the Roman Empire from the inside out. Where where is Rome today? Where is the Roman Empire? Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the wisdom of this age? Where is Alexander? the great, and Greece, and the Medes, and the Persians, and all empires that have stood against God and his people, they are no more. Because God protects his people. God's people enjoy the life of Christ amidst a world of death. And speaking of angels, we we turn to verses 11 and 12. What else does God do for his people? He sends his special servants, his special envoys, his angels to aid and to protect his people. And not only are they protected, verse 13 tells us furthermore, the young lion and the serpent, here the word is dragon, um, you will trample underfoot. You will trample underfoot. We overcome God's enemies. This is a reminder to us of what Romans 16.20 says. Paul writing to the church in Rome, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're reminded, beloved, that there are spiritual forces at work in this world that we cannot see. That there are angels in this world. Some of these angels serve God. And some of these angels in time past, unknown to us, rebelled against God and the Bible calls them demons. There is a spiritual battle, beloved, that rages not only on this earthly plane and in this earthly dimension where we can see things happening, where we see people possessed by Satan and evil, energized and animated by that which is dishonoring to God. But we need to understand that there is a spiritual battle raging with forces and spirits we cannot see. Now, this is not an invitation to try to pry with our curiosity and look into these things. No, this is something, this is a truth that God reveals in his word that ought to drive us to depend upon God, to pray to God to make God our refuge and to know with confidence that he is sovereignly in control, protecting and caring for us. And if God being our refuge 
and fortress and shield and buckler weren't enough, God says he sends the hosts of heaven to guard his church. Why does God do that? God is telling you he's sending all of heaven's resources for you, for your aid, for your rescue, for your salvation. God, you see, wants you to never hesitate in trusting him. God never wants you to waver in your trust of his promise. God wants you to see that he uses all of his power to guard you and to accomplish his purpose in you. Calvin says in his commentary, we'll find out on the last day the full extent of God's power. We, we, don't, we don't know what's going on in the spiritual realm. We're not called to find out. We're not called to pry into those things, but we will find out how many times God sent his angels to protect us. Right? Things that seem coincidence, things that seem like they shouldn't have happened. I should have been dead in that car accident. I should have been, I should, I should have been gone when I didn't serve the Lord and I overdosed on drugs or what have you, when I lived a certain life, we will find out how God protected us, how God sent his angels time and again to spare us and to rescue us. But beloved, we must not ever tempt God. You must never act rashly or do that which clearly disobeys God, thinking that God will approve of your foolishness, thinking that, oh, God sends his angels to protect me. It says it right there. Right? He'll command his angels concerning you to guard me in all of my ways. So I can do whatever I want because I have a guardian angel. I have a whole host of guardian angels protecting me. Don't be a fool. And you see, it's in that understanding that we get to understand Satan's quotation of this verse in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Turn there with me to see... um, that episode, Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. <clears throat> After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, we're told in chapter 4, verse 2 of Matthew. And so Satan, the ancient dragon, comes to our Lord and tempts him and says, If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not everything can be reduced to an economic transaction. Our greatest need is not economical. Our greatest need is not material. Our greatest need is to worship God. And then the devil, verse 5, continues. He takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's interesting that the devil omits verse 13, which speaks of his own demise, his own defeat. He leaves that off. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. How convenient. What does Jesus say? Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, he takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to Jesus, I'm going to give you these. Yeah, you're king of kings, but there's an easier way. 
to circumvent all that stuff, that suffering and the suffering servant prophecies of Isaiah and the cross to come. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give them to you. What does Jesus respond? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Christ is tempted to doubt God's provision, God's protection, God's promotion of him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In other words, Christ is tempted here to doubt God's goodness and God's promise that all things will work together for his good and that nothing can ever separate Christ from God's love. And that is in many ways the same with us today, is it not? Satan tempts you to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's promise. That all things, Romans 8 talks about all things working together for our good. And it says nothing can separate us from God's love. But the same chapter, Romans 8, that talks about that, talks about us suffering. Talks about us being led to the slaughter as sheep. We need to know that in this world, we will still suffer. And yet God will deliver you. God will deliver his church in his time and in his manner. And until then, beloved, you may never doubt God's goodness. You may never doubt his deliverance as Christ was tempted to do. Right? How often do we see, God, you, you, you made good promises to us. Right? These are good things. I want to be married. I want to have children. I want to have a good job. I want this. I want that. And so we're tempted to, to get those things on our own timetable according to our own expectations of our lives and of God. Yet you may never do that. You may never live according to your own desire because you were made for God and your greatest need is not whatever need you think you have. Your greatest need is to worship the one true living God and to remain faithful to his word. You see what God's promise means here is not that we'll never suffer, but that we'll never suffer condemnation or the judgments of God. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's promise does mean that all things are happening under Christ's sovereign care. God's promise here concerning his angels means that God will destroy all of his enemies on the last day. God's promise does mean that God will protect you through all of your suffering until the last day day such that you will tread on the lion and the adder the serpent the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot the young lion and the dragon the more ruthless and vicious the enemies of christ now we're talking about lions and venomous serpents the more powerful christ's victory will be To paraphrase Chesterton, the Bible was written not only to teach us that there are dragons, the Bible was also written to teach us that all dragons will be destroyed by God. God will save his people. God will save his people. And because of this, beloved, how are you then going to live? We come now to the third and final declaration of our covenant love for God in verses 14 through 16. 
but this time it's in God's own mouth. The three declarations. In the first, the psalmist testifies that he has trusted God. I, I have made God my refuge. The first person. In verse 9, the psalmist testifies that you have trusted God. The second person. And now God testifies in the third person that he, that he has loved me. This is God's own verdict of his own dearly beloved people. Notice what God says, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Notice what God says his people have done. They have held fast to me in love. An older translation says, because he has cleaved to me in love. Because he knows my name. Because he calls out to me. We're reminded, are we not, of Psalm 73. As that psalm ends amidst all the, 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 the crud of the world. The psalmist there, Asaph, says, the, the wicked seem to prosper. They're always fat. They're never sleek. It's God's people. It's the God's righteous people who are always impoverished, who are always getting the short end of the stick in society and elsewhere. And at the very end of it all, he says, I would have been like a brutish animal had I not entered the sanctuary of God and seen the end of the wicked. And at the end, he says, whom have I, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And here the same sentiment, the same words are being revealed to us. He has held on to me in love. He has set his heart upon me, God says of his people. You are called, beloved, to have this love. That is unwavering, this devotion that says, God, you and you only do I love. My heart glows with devotion for you. God, you are my all in all, my strength, my hope, my joy, my life, my salvation. And notice that as we serve the Lord, as we trust the Lord, notice the overabundance of God's grace, our cup overflows yes we have loved god but but as we end the psalm our love fades into the background and what remains and becomes ever brighter is god's love and salvation for us here here the crescendo here in verses 15 and 16 when he calls to me i will answer him i will be with him in trouble i will rescue him and honor him with long life i will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. Seven times God says, I will, I will, I will. God delivers us. God protects us. God answers us. God is present with us. God rescues us. God honors us. God satisfies us. God is in fellowship with us. God extends his companionship to us. And God at the very end reveals his full salvation to us without end. This is the tenderness of God's mercy. 
This is the strength of His power. This is the faithfulness of His promise. Here is our God, and here is our full salvation. Right? If you've ever wondered, what, what is salvation? For many of you, I've asked you that question. What is salvation? How do you define salvation, right? In the context of sacraments and other things. This is it here. This is the full package. The full package of God work, of God's works includes all of these particular aspects that God will deliver us, that God will rescue us, that God will honor us, that God will satisfy us, that God will be with us until the end. This is what salvation is. And so, beloved, as we conclude, you must gain this perspective. Big God theology. And you must not only gain the big picture here of the Christian life that is revealed to us in Psalm 91, but you must maintain this big picture of the Christian life for all the days God is pleased to give you here on earth. This is your God. This is the God whom we serve, who works all things, our trials, our sufferings, the hostility of our enemies to our good and our salvation for his glory. Our God who leads us in triumph to love him, to serve him, to trust him always. This is your God. This is his love for you. This is his power for you. This is his promise for you. This covenant bond. This relationship is unbreakable. You are his and he is yours forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you are so kind and merciful. Lord, we enter in by grace and we remain in covenant with you by your grace. We would so easily be overwhelmed and drowned by our foes, our sins within us, the world outside of us, and the devil, whoever lurks to destroy us. But blessed be your holy name. Father, you sustain us in this fight, and you deliver us from all of our foes and all of our afflictions. And we thank you, Father, for the promise of Christ, which is made sure for us in the midst of our trials and sufferings. Father, your word declares that in the midst of all these things, we will see your wondrous works. Help us and give us the eyes of faith, Father, not to see the the way of this world in our day, but to see you, Father, working out salvation for your people, delivering us and growing your people and your kingdom evermore around the world. Help us, Father. And hear us for these things, for we pray them now in Jesus' name. Amen.